Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. Welcome, everybody, to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I have one of the neatest people that I know joining me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. He is a sales leader, a speaker, and he has just started his own podcast called Lead, Sell, Grow. And I love leadership. I love selling. And I like growing. I just don't like growing out. I like growing inwardly. <laughs> and my friend Harry Spade is here joining me this morning on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I should say today because you never know when we're going to release these things. Harry, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for the intro. And yes, I don't want to be growing out either. Uh, this is the uh, age where uh, we have to worry about that. <laughs> well, I think we're all dealing with a little bit of the quarantine 15 so to speak. So Yes, indeed. My refrigerator is too close to the office. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Harry, you have got an unusual story, a neat story. You've taken an unusual journey in life. Kind of take us back to, to the beginning, your childhood. Although you're a Floridian right now, you are not a native Floridian. You grew up in the New England area, correct? I did. I grew up in... Uh, the state of Massachusetts in a small farming factory town, if you will. Not a lot of visionaries. <laughs> People lived there their entire lives and uh, it just was uh, really not for me uh, in the big picture of things. But when, a lot of great values were stemmed from there. Yeah, when you were growing up, you know, and, and a lot of kids in that area, when you live near a major metropolitan area, and I'm sure you're what, about an hour from Boston? Yeah, a little bit. Growing up. Yeah, yeah. You live in a major metropolitan area, and obviously there are industries that are, that are popular to that area. There are things that maybe expectations from family like, hey, you know, because we live here, you're going to do this. I know in West Virginia and a lot of areas, the expectations are when kids grow up, they're going to go work in the coal mines because yeah. that's just what they're, they have been used to being around. When you were growing up, what, was, what did young Harry Spate aspire to be when you, quote, unquote, grew up? Yeah, that's uh, – uh, yeah, that's uh, – I'm still kind of figuring that one out, Brian. So, <laughs> but, yeah, the, uh, it's an interesting thing. My dad was a Ivy Leaguer and – you know, most of my friends' dads worked in factories. So it was a weird dynamic. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, my father was fortunate enough to uh, get into uh, Harvard and then Tufts. And, you know, he went that route. And I was, unfortunately, I was a bit of a rebel in high school. And, you know, it just uh, things just worked out differently for me. So... Uh, and what did I want to be? I really had no clue. I was one of those that just stumbled across things in life. And, you know, you make connections with people and they say, Hey, do you ever think about doing this? Or would you like to do that? And, uh, I said, sure. Why not? Did you ever feel that pressure internally from, from your parents? Because your dad 
was an intellectual. You're, you know, I'm sure your mom kind of followed along in that path, but you know, there are pressure sometimes for the children to follow in the parents' footsteps. Did you ever feel that same pressure to, to maybe go to Harvard or go to Tufts or go to maybe a Brown or a Yale? No, no. I mean, it was, uh, my father was very hands-off on things and my mom was just the exact opposite, um, by the way. Uh, she was not, I mean, she's, I think had maybe an eighth grade education. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was really an interesting, you know, and plus my parents were much older. So my parents were, I mean, 40 plus years older than me. Um, so I was, my parents were like my friend's grandparents, by the way. So <laughs> it wasn't yeah. an odd thing to say, are those your grandparents? I'm like, uh, no, that would be my parents. So I had a, it, yeah. How was that dynamic in your home growing up? Because it, it's, it's similar, and, and I mean no disrespect to my wife. My wife has an associate's degree. I have a bachelor's and a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's sometimes where education becomes somewhat of a, a pedestal kind of thing. Yeah. In other words, I have two degrees, you don't, I'm smarter, you're not. Was there ever any, did you ever see your dad really kind of, kind of say, look at my education? Because the reason I ask this is, I fell into that trap after I got my MBA. Yeah. I was so proud of the education that I garnered. Like, well, I've got sure. an MBA. I've got an MBA. Did you ever see that with your dad where, where education, because those are two of the most prestigious universities <laughs> in the country. Right. Did you ever yeah. see your dad kind of flaunt that type of, of education? Yeah, I mean, pedigree? it's interesting, but yeah, it's a good question. I've never really experienced that at all. Um, so I was, you know, uh, again, this is the 1970s. It's 10 years from Woodstock. I grew up, uh, you know, as a young child in the 60s with an older sister who was 15 years older than me or so. Mm -hmm. And so I learned, I mean, I was listening to the Beatles when I was four, right? I mean, it was just <laughs> uh, iron butterfly, uh, you know, weird metal drug LSD music. Uh, so I kind of grew up in a you know, my parents didn't really understand anything that I was doing. Uh, so when I'm buying these albums. Hey, mine neither. Don't, don't right. feel bad. Mine neither. Yes. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, when you have two generations or a full generation yeah. skipping parents to the child, it was just a very weird dynamic. So I think my parents were happy when, when uh, I moved out of the house eventually. And they said, you know, good. Uh, let's get rid of this guy. He's not like us. He's different. <laughs> you know, they, they found you somewhere, Moses, hiding in the bulrushes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I look back with fond memories of it. I mean, yeah. we all learn. I'm not one of, I mean, I, there's nothing to blame. I mean, I was just joking with some the other day. It's like, I grew up a fairly normal kid. I mean, I just was, I was different. Yeah. Um, but I have, I can't blame my parents for anything. So I can't really write any books, uh, cause I have no tragedies in my childhood. That different kind of life. And, and, and my family has that same type of dynamic. I'm 17 years older than my youngest sister. Mm -hmm. So my parents adopted okay. her when I was a senior in high school. And, and I understand that dynamic because 
she was 11 when my wife and I found out we were going to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And so she was used to being the baby and, and now we're having a child of our own. So I understand that dynamic. When you moved out, what was the thought process in your mind of, of where you were going and, and what you were going to do to get from point A to point B? Yeah, I was. All right, so this is uh, one of my challenges in life back then. I was really not much of a planner. Um, so I just did what, you know, again, I was not, can't blame my parents for anything. Uh, I just did not have a clue. I didn't have those conversations about what should you do with your life. Uh, none of those conversations, really. Uh, my father just said, you'll figure it out. And uh, I was telling uh, you know, a friend of mine, or actually my co-host on the podcast, is that, so I was big into comedy. I just, you know, my release uh, was comedy, and I was a huge fan of Woody Allen back in the 70s. Went to all, saw all of his movies, read his books, and um, he, you know, really was, uh, had this weird, morbid view of death. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking about big picture. So um, 16, 17 years old, I'm asking my friends about what, what they think happens when we die. And all What's this. the meaning of life? Right, huh? exactly. And they're like, what is wrong with you? Get away from me. So I, you know, it's just my friends kind of thought I was cuckoo and I can't really blame them. Uh, who looks to Woody Allen as their, uh, <laughs> as their reason for uh, figuring things out in life? But anyway, long story short, that's when I started uh, becoming a little more spiritually minded and got involved with uh, religion and, you know, making new friends and it was a completely different lifestyle. And I learned, you know, wasn't about really being saved for me. It was about how do I help others? Mm -hmm. You know, once I kind of said there's a bigger picture, maybe others need to know about this and I can help other people. And that set me on a trajectory of that working in the inner cities, uh, learning mm-hmm. to speak Spanish, living in the Dominican Republic, you know, going to countries like Russia, um, right after the fall of communism, uh, breaking up pieces of the Berlin Wall in 1990, shortly after wow. that. You know, so we've got tremendous memories, um, you know, and it was really uh, an adventure. So what was the selfish side of me was, Yes, I'm helping people, but I'm living this pretty cool adventure of, uh, you know, exploring the world and seeing other cultures and, you know, get my hands dirty. You mentioned you, you were, so were you at the Berlin Wall when that, that was starting to collapse? You, you mentioned picking up pieces of that. Yeah, so just after. Um, so it opened up in, uh, I believe, in November of 89. Uh, when it started to fall, we were there in April of May of 90. So there was, they were disassembling it. I've got, you know, grainy video from my uh, wow. uh, Sony camcorder of uh, the Germans disassembling the Berlin Wall where, you know, people died for climbing, right? So mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. Harry, when you think about that, did that change your perception at, uh, at all about the concept of freedom? Because I would think if that were me, and this is why I asked the question is, we, we have never 
been a country where we've had states divided by a physical border. Some to the to the degree that Germany was basically split in two. You had East Germany and West Germany, and it was the Berlin Wall. And and those people in East Germany, a lot of times to your point, would climb the Berlin Wall to go to West Germany because it was the free part of Germany. Did that change your perception of at all of the concept of freedom? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you, when you think about how easy it is to travel in the U.S. and to go anywhere in the world, and then, so my, you know, I, I didn't really understand the whole Berlin thing. I thought they were, the wall was really to protect the East Berliners. But being there, I realized it was, no, it's not about protecting the East Berliners. It's about preventing the East Berliners from escaping. Yeah. And I just, that blew my mind. I said, this was, I mean, this was 1990, mm -hmm. right? This, this wasn't the 1600s. This was 1990. And to me, like World War II and that whole, you know, obviously the atrocities that were committed in World War II, because it happens before birth, it could have been, you know, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. But when you see that for real and you hear the stories and you're speaking to people, I mean, my wife and I were uh, recently married at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we wanted to get involved in, the, in meeting people, right? So we were over there on our tour of our faith, right? And meeting people that way. But we just separated and said, let's go get, you know, let's go get in the mix, mm -hmm. right? And so we started talking to people. Um, people, you know, it was weird. I mean, we're so naive, but I mean, the world back then was different. We didn't have as much fear as maybe there is today, but started speaking, people asking, you know, who spoke English. And uh, before long, we were, uh, you know, speaking to a guy who, you know, was showing us all the things from World War II and what wow. happened in the fall of, uh, you know, what they dealt with, with uh, the whole Berlin Wall going up and, it was just amazing. So yeah, did that impact us? Absolutely. As far as, un, you know, there's no, when people uh, complain and moan about the U.S., I, I just, you know, we have no clue as to what it really could be like, right? When you started meeting people, and I'm sure you encountered people that lived on the East German side of the wall. Yeah, Absolutely. When they shared their stories with you, what was the what was the overwhelming theme to their story that they shared with you about the new Germany that they well, were? Well, I mean, in? there was concern. I mean, so this goes back also to uh, Russia as well, because Russia was a communist, and so freedom. You know, I think the country, uh, without being political here, is that people learn just because people are free doesn't mean that they automatically fall in line with democratic values. So they were raised for 40 years or so, 30 plus years. I think the wall went up in 1960 or so. So it's 30 years. I mean, that's a whole generation of young people that grew up that way and people that were, you know, 15 were now 45. Uh, so their entire adult life was living like that. So the commonality was freedom is awesome, but we really don't know what the heck this means. And 
there was a ton of anticipation, concern, and, uh, you know, we were just happy to be a part of it because we're just like, this freedom is so awesome. This is so great. And, you know, financially, I think those people, they suffered for quite a bit because they had everything given to them. Um, and then they had to go out and, you know, kind of figure out that capitalism was a little bit different. Well, and when you are, to your point, and I was thinking as you were saying that about the, the person that was 15, when things quote unquote locked down. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're 15 years old, you're a teenager. And the next time you're, you have a taste of freedom in the way that you're tasting freedom, then you're, you're a middle-aged man. I'll be 48 in August. Yeah. I can't imagine spending 30 years of my life. And then all of a sudden I'm going, it's over. Right. We're, we're free. Yeah. And, and, and it just becomes a distant memory that do you think that how in, in coming back from that trip, how did that trip change your life and your perspective on life? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, I, I think that the, the, the big thing about traveling and seeing, so there's one thing about traveling in general that it opens up your eyes to how big the world is and that your views are not always the best views. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and then the whole thing about being compassionate, um, with others. So I'll give you an example is that the whole, when Russia collapsed as a, the Soviet Union, excuse me, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, it wasn't automatic freedom, mm -hmm. right? So people didn't know what to do. And so we met, and two things that really stood out. One is we met with a university professor, a university of Leningrad, right? So uh, he was still uh, trying to get comfortable with the fact that they were calling Leningrad St. Petersburg now. And he was yeah, asking us point. questions about the U.S. And he had, his, he had a daughter that somehow left uh, and I don't remember the story, but this guy was just fascinated that he could speak with Americans in his own country. And his line was that I'll never forget was, I'm free, but we have no food. Wow. Right. So, yeah. Right. So if you think about going into the grocery, going into a store, and this is, this is a major city in the world. St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg is not a small city. And going into stores and the things that you saw were vodka, cooking oil, and maybe a little bread. And, you know, it was just the shelves were empty. Mm -hmm. So it was the same deal as, you know, people, I mean, similar, <laughs> little bit of humor, but imagine going to Costco, right? People yep. are lined up going to Costco and you know, they're all in line orderly and they go in and there's, you know, a few little scraps for the day and you had to do the same thing all over the next day. Mm -hmm. But that's what those people were doing because since the communists, everyone was working, quote unquote, working with communism, when that collapsed, there was no immediate, hey, I'm going to start my own business now. Mm -hmm. Right. So the other funny thing was the, so all the parks, there's no one cutting the grass in the parks. Mm -hmm. So the grass was now, we were there in uh, the summertime. So June, July timeframe, the grass was probably no joke, three feet tall. And there are people when we were walking by 
people would pop their heads up out of the grass. So they were like laying in the grass, sunbathing in hay, which we would look at as like a field of hay where the grass, I mean, you just, it was almost impossible to comprehend that someone would be lying in that. But that mm -hmm. was the status of the parks. Again, because the government was making any money, so no one's cutting grass in the parks. So it's just a very bizarre experience uh, that just totally opened up my eyes that, hey, this freedom is not automatic. People don't know mm -hmm. what to do with it. And, you know, we've got it made in this country, but not everyone gets the way we are. So we think because we're Americans in general, we go somewhere, people just, they're fascinated with us. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're so foreign to them sometimes. Now you've got my wheels turning because, <laughs> because now I'm thinking to myself, how do I grow my grass around the perimeter of my property to get it about three feet high and then mow the inside to where I can enjoy it? But I have like this three to a natural four foot, fence. A natural fence. That's exactly right. A natural fence. Yes. So those visuals just do not leave, right? It just no, uh, it's no. They they do not. They do not leave. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. You 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 spend time in Germany. You spend time in Russia. You've also you've also done mission work in the Dominican Republic. Now you you have to decide on a career, right? You have yeah. to get, you have to figure out how am I going to support my, my bride and how am I going to, you know, we, we'd like to have kids and yeah, you know, as, exactly. as all, as all, as all people do, you know, when they get to that point of, okay, what, what do I got to do now? Yeah. Especially how, from a guy who never was a good planner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, right? Yeah. We, we forgot about that. So, so take us to your transition into your career in sales. How did that come about yeah. for you? Did you just, did you just have, and I know some guys, the reason I asked that, I know some guys that went to college to be teachers or, or whatever. And they, they, they quote unquote fell into sales and did yeah. very well. Was that you or was that kind of a, a let's try this out and see what happens. Right. So uh, my, my, the, this was really made my dad very happy is when I went to college, I went for uh, one semester and said, this is not for me. Right. So, <laughs> right. so oh, I'm sure a guy with right? two degrees, you know, yeah, yeah. So he, yeah, he was not pleased, but anyway. Um, so I had, uh, I'm going to just kind of think this through a little bit, but when I was in the DR, um, Dominican I, just, Republic, I had right? I had to visualize where I was going to be next, right? So when mm -hmm. we decided that there's a certain point in life where you, if you're going to want to have kids, you have to do it before the clock runs out, right? Unless you adopt, but we weren't thinking that way. So we had the now or never moment. And um, so I was just sitting out in uh, the veranda, so to speak, overlooking the valley. And I just put myself in a state of so what's next? And, you know, I just saw myself, I mean, totally visualized me in a car with a laptop computer going from business to business, right? I have never done anything that way. I, had, I didn't even have a computer. Um, you know, I knew laptops existed, but I was so foreign to technology. Mm -hmm. I said, well, this, this would be the way to go. I don't know what that, how that all translates, but I saw it before it happened. And then I started reading, you know, sales books and things uh, about motivation afterwards when I was getting into sales. 
and it fell exactly into place is that in order to have something happen in your life, you need to see it before it happens. And that stuck with me for the last uh, 25 years or so. So what was the first thing that you sold or you got into sales? What yeah, was so I tried to sell health insurance um, to small businesses. And I, uh, the, so again, I was really naive when it came to business. I had my own little painting and cleaning company. And, you know, so I did a little bunch of little things, but I didn't really understand business. I had zero business acumen. Mm-hmm. So I looked up the classifieds for sales jobs. And there was one that said, earn $50,000 a year, come, you know, to this place or whatever. So you meet at a hotel room or whatever. And uh, I was very excited because they gave me a job and it only cost me $300 to actually get the job. So I wasn't really understanding that normally when you get a job, you don't have to pay. So that kind of reminds me, you said you liked comedy and you were talking about Russia. That reminded me of the comedian Yakov Smirnov. Yeah. What a country. It don't right, cost me $300 right, right, yeah. to get a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I came back home. So we had no money, right? I had a credit card. So we ended up buying cars, used cars with credit cards, credit cards. And I added more, you know, here I was, I'm going to start work, uh, making an income. Mm-hmm. And I'm just adding more to the credit card bills. So yeah, it was, it was a brilliant move, but that led to, you know, me realizing that this was what sales was like. And then, uh, I had a conversation with an old friend and he introduced me to the industry, which I have not left, uh, today is still the, the copier document technology space and, uh, yeah, pretty much made a career out of it, but it wasn't easy. In that space, that world has changed so much. I remember when I was a kid, probably 40 years ago, my dad spent a short time working for a copier company up here in West Virginia. And I know, I remember at that time, it was, it was a tough industry. And, and because printing was not, people didn't think, and, and, and computers were, were coming into play and things like that. If you wanted something printed, you send it to a print shop or, or some companies had their own print shop and, yeah. and it was, you know, you, your, your, your document production was a typewriter and a piece of paper. And that's what you did. That's how you produce documents was with a typewriter and a piece of paper. Right. As the technology changed, what did you find that you had to do to change along with it? Yeah, so I started and uh, color was new to the industry. And so the owner of the company I worked for said, you would be good in promoting this new color technology. So I had no client base. It was, um, color was really a brand new thing. So we were, um, it was, everything was a new placement. So we were introducing color technology, color print technology to companies. Uh, and it cost somewhere around $20,000, 20 to $50,000. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not every, no one was looking for a 20 to $50,000 printer, trust me. Mm-hmm. So we had to, you know, we had to learn about their business. I learned a ton about graphics, um, Mac computers, uh, Adobe uh, applications like Quark Express. 
And I was one of those that I felt like I needed to know more than I really needed to Mm -hmm. in order to start talking about it. So I was paranoid that I wasn't going to know enough and someone's going to ask me a question. And then before long, I realized, you know, I'm never going to know this. You know, let me at least get started. Um, I knew enough to be dangerous. And then uh, the owner decided that uh, it'd be good to have a team around me for these high-end solutions of printers. And, you know, we started doing team selling and uh, I learned a ton from the different uh, ways of looking at things, different personalities, analytical people, you mm-hmm. know, great personalities, outgoing people. And then, you know, me just tagging along and saying, hey, I found these people. Let's go talk to them. So, well, and, and yeah. I, I think that is so interesting, Harry, because it, it, it harkens me back to earlier in the, our conversation when you were talking about you and your wife getting into to Berlin and saying, let's go away from the group and let's get into where the people are. Let's mix in and let's just, let's see what we can see here. And and I see that sense of exploration as you were talking about your transition into selling collar technology. Have you always considered yourself an explorer type? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, just the, the funny, dumb things, right. Uh, and it goes, uh, I'm not sure where to start, but I remember when we were in the Bahamas, um, we were doing our, uh, you know, big into faith and spirituality and helping others. Someone brought us to the Bahamas, you know, good friends of ours said, look, we're going to take you on our trip with us. And so Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there on the beach with my wife and I said, wouldn't it be great to live on a tropical island? Mm-hmm. And two years, we're living in the Dominican Republic. I mean, oh, wow. it's just, yeah. you know, we just, I would say things like that. And thank God, my wife, I mean, she just, uh, uh, you know, I tell her all the time, it's like, I don't know how you put up with me and all the dumb things, but it's just, yeah. it's that sense of adventure um, and trying different things that has kept, you know, I feel like uh, life is too short just to be status quo. That's why I left the small town mentality and wanted to kind of explore the world a little bit. I asked my wife the same thing and she responds with one word. Yeah. Prozac. <laughs> Prozac is the word yeah. she responds with. That's how she says yeah. she puts up with me. No, Harry, I want to transition here in the, in the, in the few minutes we have left. Sure. I want to transition to a time that you faced a really big obstacle and, and, and talk to me about the biggest challenge the biggest obstacle that you overcame in your life, career, whatever it might be. You talked early in the conversation about the obstacle of being the youngest in the generation separating you and your siblings, you know, how, how different that is and, and the differences between you and your parents. But tell me about the biggest obstacle maybe you faced in your life or your career. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the biggest obstacle was that transition of coming from a world of it was all about helping others and living on you know i had my own business but we were very we just lived week to week paycheck to paycheck whatever you know so but it was all for the bigger mission in life so when i came back or we came back and we had nothing Mm -hmm. right and i'm telling you we had nothing we were we were staying with friends and that just wasn't working out I had no job. We had no money. 
right? We had credit cards. So everything we were doing was on credit cards. So we we're like, this is not a good, <laughs> this is not a good plan, right? Yeah. Uh, and then my wife said, you know, we've got to go live in an apartment because we can't stay here. And I said, yeah, you're right. So let's go do that. So we're paying the dang uh, landlord off of credit cards. Mm-hmm. And we're in a three room apartment. You know, the bathroom was no sink in the bathroom. Uh, the sink was in the kitchen. So imagine having people over and say, yeah, there's the bathroom, but you have to you wash yeah. your hands in the sink in the yeah. kitchen. And uh, we were just dumb and naive. But I mean, it was just like, how, how am I going to get out of this mess? And, you know, you, so you go from that to, and so change to me, you know, once you do that, um, you know, there's just, I don't have a lot of fear and anxiety that I'll ever be in that situation again. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the one that, uh, that stands out, I think, but there's a tons of others that when you're doing the living in the Dominican Republic, you're like, Oh, oh my God, uh, moments. <laughs> that we, was the one we, that uh, was we may the have to do a second intentional encourager podcast <laughs> with you talking about your life in the Dominican, but you talked earlier about not being a natural planner. Yeah. Did that situation force you into becoming more of a planner because I'm that way too. I, I did not develop planning skills like I have now until I was probably in my, I want to say my, my mid to late thirties. Yeah. It just didn't, me. didn't come naturally to me. Yeah. Was that the moment that it, you kind of flipped the script and said, I got to get a plan together. Yeah. So uh, the job helped me with planning, right? Again, I had no business acumen. I never read anything about planning. I, I mean, it just wasn't who I was. I was the adventure right. guy, right? So had a thought and just go do it. Mm-hmm. So the idea of planning was foreign to me, but yes, the job helped me to get into the value of planning. And, you know, I still struggle with it to this day, but you don't, I don't make any moves anymore without thinking them through, wow. right? So yeah. when you have, you know, once you have kids, then your whole viewpoint of doing things spur of the moment pretty much has to change right because well the only thing spur of the moment you have to do is change a diaper or yeah, maybe go exactly. to the er or something <laughs> yeah, like that's that. right yeah. exactly you know yeah true harry the last question i've got for you i really man i can't thank you for your time this has been great conversation we could go for two hours i mean just <laughs> just you know but but you know we want to keep this to a to a nice listenable sure uh, format. Well, you can delete my portion and it'll be very manageable. <laughs> no, nah, that would be, that would leave us with zero because oh, I don't okay. contribute a whole lot to this thing. But Harry, what's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement to folks? Because again, we are in some unusual times right now. There is no question that, that our world as we know, it's probably not going to be the same. Like we talked about with the German people that you encountered 30 years ago. What's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement to this audience in this podcast? Yeah, it's really, you've got to, I don't wish this to end, right? When you wish something to end, you're really wishing part of your life to go away. And I appreciate every single day. It's like, uh, you know, those are values that have been instilled in me for years. Um, and you've got it in spite of the hardship, in spite of the challenges, you still have to find ways to appreciate every day. And t- to me, I feel like I have to get better every day. 
So I'm looking now at pre-COVID to where I am now. Is my marriage better? I, I have to say yes. Mm-hmm. Is my relationship with my kids better? I, I have to say yes to that. Mm-hmm. Is my, you know, the fact that I'm now doing podcasts, that's was completely fo- foreign to me pre-COVID, mm-hmm. right? And I had all the doubts in the world. Why would anyone want to listen to a podcast? Why should, I mean, who, who am I? You know, what have I done? I'm not an author. I'm not a scholar. I mean, I just, you know, I'm, not, I'm really, you know, I'm not trying to be overly humble, but I'm nothing special. And so when you have all these doubts of this, it's hard to do it, but I just encourage people, get, get over the doubt and just put yourself out there and good things will happen. And uh, just don't be overly consumed with Netflix and you know, Prime Video because that's not going to give you, when you look back at this time, that's not going to give you the uh, reward of, hey, I became a better person during this time. I'd often wondered at times if Joe Exotic wasn't actually living in West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like the perfect West Virginia show. Is, is, a, is a, it works is a, for Florida too, though. Right. It's a dude that's got exotic animals. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, man. It, you know, probably somewhere behind my studio here are running some exotic animals, at least the deer I see in my yard come, come fall and things like that. Harry Spate, tell people where they can, can find your content connect with you, things like that. I would strongly encourage you to connect with Harry. If anybody is the epitome of an intentional encourager, it's Harry Spate. How, how yeah, can folks so find you? We appreciate that. Uh, my partner and I, Eric Konovalov, are on the B2B sales group in uh, Facebook. And if you look for Lead, Sell, Grow on iTunes and listen to a podcast and download it, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, but this is all about sharing and helping others is what our mission is. So even though the title is Lead, Sell, Grow, it is the human experience. So we're really trying to tie in humanity with sales and leadership and not just making money in sales, right? And you can also find him on LinkedIn at Harry Spate, S-P-A-I-G-H-T, Harry Spate. Harry, thank you so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure, Brian. You're the master. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You got it, bud. My thanks, as always, to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be an intention.